Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James 1. And the guys have some Bibles. If you need one, they're going to make their way down the aisle. So get their attention and they'll get a Bible to you. It's marked for you at James chapter 1. And we are in a series through the book of James. The title of the series is on the screen behind me, Real Faith, because the theme of the five chapters of James is tests of whether or not our faith, and the word faith in the New Testament is the same word for belief, whether or not what we say we believe is authentic, genuine, or real faith. And this is our fourth message in one section, a particular section of chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. I'll allude to that, but we are spending a few weeks expanding on what verses 20 through 22 through 25 tell us. And we'll get to those in just a moment. I read a book several years ago, a best-selling book called The Closing of the American Mind by Professor Alan Bloom. And this is what he says in that book. There's only one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition as not self-evident astonishes them, as though one were calling into question 2 plus 2 equals 4. These are things you don't think about. That, is, that it's a moral issue for students is revealed by the character of their response when they're challenged. It's a combination of disbelief and indignation. Are you an absolutist? The only alternative they know, uttered in the same tone as, do you really believe in witches? This latter leads into the indignation for someone who believes in witches might well be a witch hunter or a Salem judge. The danger they've been taught to fear from absolutism is not error, but intolerance. Relativism is necessary to openness. And this is the virtue, the only virtue, which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to inculcating. Openness and the relativism that makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of life and kinds of human beings, openness is the great insight of our times. The study of history and of culture teaches that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought they were right, and that led to wars, persecution, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. And the point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is to not think you are right at all. Pretty well summarizes where so many people in our culture are. But that has great consequences in culture. To abandon belief in absolute truth leads to very strange and dangerous places. To paraphrase another thinker and author, G.K. Chesterton, when people stop believing in absolute truth, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. Now, we would affirm the accuracy of that statement. But unfortunately, we sometimes do so 
in the abstract, not in the reality of our own lives. We believe absolute truth is objectively true, but not subjectively true. Now, what do I mean? We affirm belief in absolute truth and therefore things like absolute right and wrong. But in our own lives, absolute truth is not so rock solid. For instance, let me ask you, do you believe that it's absolutely true that God is in control of all things? And your answer will be yes. Yes, in the abstract. But is it absolutely true that God is in control of all your things? And that God is in control of all the stuff in your life? Because if we really believe that's true, it'll affect how we react to our circumstances. But if we merely say that we believe it's true, and when confronted with adversity, we begin to fret and to worry, and we begin to take matters into our own hands, even if it means disobeying God, then the statement, God is in control, is not really absolutely true in our minds, is it? If I believe God is in control, I can trust Him for that which is beyond my responsibility. If I really believe that, it will show up in how I trust God, in that which is beyond my responsibility. Now, some of you have heard me talk about, over the years, the circle of concern and the circle of responsibility. But let me remind you as to what that is. All of us have a a wide circle of concern. Things that we know about, things we hear about, things that we're concerned about, things that we wish were different than they are, things that we would like to change if we could. And so we hear about things happening in another part of the world. We might be concerned about that. But there may be absolutely nothing I can do about that. And I don't have a direct responsibility for all of the things that I'm concerned about. I may be concerned about someone with whom I have a relationship, someone in my own family. But I'm not responsible for changing that person. And yet, my circle of concern very easily merges into my circle of responsibility. I take as my responsibility things that God has not only not assigned to me, things that God has actually told me you can't do. You can't change that other person. But many of us are on a lifelong quest to do that. Why? Because we don't really believe God is in control. When I fail to trust or obey God, it's because I'm believing a lie. You see, with those things that are in my circle of concern, but about which I cannot take direct action to affect the outcome, and therefore they're not in my circle of responsibility, in those things in my circle of concern, I have to trust God. And in those things that are in my circle of responsibility, I must obey God. I must carry out my responsibility. But when I fail to do either, trust God with those things I'm concerned about, or obey God in those things I'm responsible for. In either case, when I fail to do those things, it's because I'm believing a lie. 
And I'm not just believing a lie, not just any lie. I'm believing a lie about God. And the lie is, God is not great. So I have to be in control. You see, friends, if you find yourself having to take control, behind that is a lie about God. That He is not great, and and I would add this, or at least not great enough. Because again, in the abstract, if we say, is God great? If we sing, is God great? Oh yeah, God's great. God's mighty. God can do anything. In the abstract. But apparently He's not great enough when it comes to my stuff. And last week we saw that behind every sin or negative emotion is a lie about God. If you fear, and that is biblically, if you revere or you hold in awe something or someone other than God, it is because you believe it is or they are more awesome, more important than God. And the lie about God is, God is then not glorious. Or at least not glorious enough. If you want something, you may believe it or they offer to you more than God. And the lie behind that is that God is not good. Or at least not good enough. If you're angry about something, you may feel that God has let you down. Again, God is therefore not good, is the lie. Or not good enough. If you're angry about something and you feel that God has let you down and your chance is over. Things will never be right for me. I can never endure this particular thing. Then the lie about God is that He is not gracious. Or at least not gracious enough for you. Now, as I said, we've been in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And there James tells us famously in verse 22, Do not merely be hearers of the word, but do what it says. And then in verses 23 through and 24, it gives an absurd example of someone who would behold himself or herself in a mirror. And see that they're unkempt. See that changes need to be made to their physical appearance. But they go away immediately and they remain unchanged. And James says that's like someone who looks into the mirror of the Word of God. Sees that change is necessitated, but no change actually happens. It's like someone looking in the mirror this morning as you rolled out of the rack and said, Ah, I'll just go with it. And verse 25 says, but in contrast to that, to the man or woman who looks, and then it says looks intensely into the perfect law that gives freedom. He changes according to what he or she sees there. Not forgetting what he has heard or read. That person will be blessed, the end of verse 25 says, in what he or she does. Now this issue, of actually changing, actually putting into practice what we sing and what we say we believe in our confessions is of such importance that the book of James is about faith that works, belief that behaves, 
real, authentic, genuine belief. And it's so important for us in this church and us in our individual lives that this is the fourth message on that theme. And what I'm doing again today is elaborating on that theme of changing according to the Word of God. I'll do so again one more Sunday, next Sunday. That's how important it is. And last week, we saw four truths that we must continually turn to. If you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen. We have all of our messages online. But we saw truths that we, if we're going to change, have to continually turn to. And today, as I say in your outline that was inserted in your program, we're going to see desires that we must continually turn from. So truths we must turn to last week, and now desires, if we're really going to change according to the Word of God, desires that we must continually turn from. We'll come back at the end of our time today to the need to believe as the way to replace our desires. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be in this room for this sacred moment right now. We are here by your divine appointment, not by accident. And you have allowed us to be here. You've given us the desire to be here. You've worked in our circumstances to be invited to be here. Somehow, in your sovereign providence, we are here by your divine appointment. I pray, Lord, that we will receive and we will accept all that you have designed for us in this look into your word. May we leave this place different than we came. To the glory of Jesus, amen. Friends, if deep, lasting change is to occur for us, it's going to happen at the heart level, not merely at the practical level. That is, we'll not only undergo a change of our practices, what we do, we'll also have a change of heart, a change of our desires, what we want to do. The mirror of the Word of God is designed to penetrate to that deepest level. And that's why the Bible says about the Bible, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The Word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And this means, as I say in your outline, that the first step in true change is to recognize the root of our sin. If we're truly going to change at the heart level, We're going to have to recognize then the root of our sin, and that root is idolatry. True change, lasting change, change that's beyond the superficial and just behavioral, but really gets to the radical root of why we do what we do, recognizes that the root of sin is ultimately idolatry. You go, I came into the wrong place if you're going to talk about idolatry as the key to me changing in my life. Dude, I'm not an idolater. Now, the reason you say that, the reason we say that is because 
we have too narrow a definition of idolatry. It is true you're not an idolater and I'm not an idolater if your definition of idolatry is simply bowing down to an image of stone or wood. My guess is nobody here does that. But the Bible's definition of idolatry is much broader than that. God said of some religious leaders in the first part of your Bible, these men have set up idols in their hearts. John Calvin said, man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. You see, the truth is, friends, we are so creative in our desires and our wants, distorted by our sin natures, that we can make an idol, literally make an idol, out of anything or anyone. Idols set up in our hearts, not of wood, not of gold or silver, silver, not something we physically bow down to, but something or someone that has captured our affections and our desires more than God. And so the prophet Jeremiah, God says through him, my people have forsaken me. And so they follow after other gods to their own harm. This broader definition of idolatry has been recognized by others over the centuries. Martin Luther said, A God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. Let me just stop. So could could a bottle be someone's God then? Anything or anyone. Whatever, Luther says, you set your heart on and you put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. Another author has said, idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or His character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. Author Tim Keller says, our idols are those things we count on to give our lives meaning. They're the things of which we say, I need this to make me happy, or if I don't have this, my life is worthless and meaningless. In the New Testament, it uses the phrase sinful desires. In the King James, it's translated lusts of the flesh. And we see lust, we think immediately of sexual desire, but lust is just a word for intense desire for anything or anyone. And so it's not talking about our bodies, it's talking about our sinful natures and the distortion of our desires. And that's why the Bible can say this. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. So, greed or covetousness, I want something. And that something I want may not be illicit. It may not be bad. It may not be evil in itself. But if I want it bad enough that I'm willing to sin to get it or sin in the absence of having it, 
it has indeed become idolatrous for me. Our idols are whatever then we're greedy for. Money, approval, sex, power. Counseling author David Paulison says, if idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for that same drift. Both are shorthand for the problem of human, human beings. In other words, sinful desires of the flesh. And of course, Jesus zeroed in on this in his penetrating teaching when he walked the earth. When he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whatever you treasure most is the thing that has your heart and controls your life. Your heart in, is captivated by it. And the result of that captivation, it consumes your thoughts, your words, and shows itself in our behavior. So the Bible says, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Jesus said in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 6, where he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In that same chapter, Jesus said, no one can be mastered equally by two persons or things. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, and then he says, God and money. Singles out money. This is not a message on money in particular. But the reason money is spoken of so often and warned about so often is because money is the fuel by which we pursue what we want. And so it exposes what we desire and what we want very often more than God. And so the root of our sin problem, if we're really going to change, comes from the heart. You remember that the first sin involved a delight of the eyes by the woman in the garden. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and so she took of its fruit and she ate. The Bible says she gave some to her husband who was with her. Now notice the language. It was good to her. It was a delight to her. It was desired by her. Author Elise Fitzpatrick says, our choices are predicated upon what we think is good, what we delight in, what we find most desirable. The truth about our choices is that we always choose what we believe to be our best. We always choose what we believe will bring us the most delight. And that's why we saw earlier in James chapter 1, a few weeks ago, that James says this is the process of temptation and sin. Each one is dragged away by his own what? Desire. And so at the root of our sin problem is idolatry. And idolatry is desiring anyone or anything above God. Sin begins with desire. Now remember this, friends. We are not sinners because we commit sinful acts. We commit sinful acts because we're sinners. Born with a bias to sin and enslaved by our sinful desires. And that's why we can't change ourselves simply 
simply by changing our behavior. We need God to change us by renewing our hearts and giving us new desires. Every sin begins in the heart with a sinful desire. And again, the Lord Jesus said so. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Failure to see this is one very important reason why forgiveness and reconciliation in our relationships are often disconnected. Forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, now what do I mean? Because here's what we do. We behave in a sinful way. We do something sinful. And we're either confronted about it or we recognize it ourselves and we go to the person or persons we've offended and we say, I did X, will you forgive me? And so we ask forgiveness for discreet, itemized individual actions. Now, that is right and good. We should practice that regularly. But if we leave it at that, think about, and you probably are thinking about this person you live with, and the problems you have with him or her, or they have with, you have with each other. And over and over again over the years, they've said, oh, I've done this, will you forgive me? And you go, yeah, you know, pastor told me I'm supposed to forgive you. So. And so I forgive you. But the truth is I walk away going, I know we're going to be back here doing this this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. There's forgiveness but not reconciliation. And part of the reason is, is because there's this sneaking suspicion that although the person is mouthing the words, will you forgive me about this discreet, itemized sin that I've committed, a behavioral act or a word, they don't recognize that there's something deeper going on here. That there's a deep heart issue that manifests itself at many times in many other ways. And until we get to the heart issue, we will never move beyond transactional forgiveness to transformational change. Transactional forgiveness. We just transact. I did this. Will you forgive me? Yep. Okay. Until next time. But the heart is not transformed. And so... The person who has sought forgiveness, again, the right thing to do. But although necessary, not sufficient for true lasting change. And so we are different for a minute or a few hours or a few days. But in fact, I'm the same person at heart. Still with the idol of control. Still with the idol of arrogance. I must be seen as right still with the idol of self-centeredness at heart. Now, the opposite of that, you know, that's the offender who transacts and says, will you forgive me about this discreet, itemized thing? But there's no heart change. But then the opposite is the offended who says, you know, I'm not going to forgive anything until you get it all right. And so you have people sinning on both levels. 
On the one hand, the transaction is enough rather than heart transformational change. On the other hand, I won't grant the forgiveness until I see this complete transformational change in you. All of us, all of us are called by God to be engaged in a daily, hourly battle to mortify the, the, the desires of our sinful hearts. And how does that happen? It happens when we replace our sinful desires with better desires. The 19th century Scottish theology professor, Thomas Chalmers, spoke and wrote of what he called the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, what Chalmers says is kind of wordy because these 19th century theologians were like that, but I'll explain. But he says there are two ways in which we attempt to displace from our heart its love of the world. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart will withdraw its regards from an object that's not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to simply reject an old affection which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. Now here's what he's saying. I mean, one way for you to do this, one way for me to try to help you do this, is to preach, look, the world's bad, the world's lousy, the world lies to you. That's all true. The Bible says all that. So don't go for the world. Don't go for its desires because it's not worthy. That's one way. But Chalmers is saying that's not going to last. What you really have to do is be captured by something greater than the world and have a new desire, a new affection that has captivated your heart and replaces the desire for worldliness. So what we have to do if we're really going to change is we have to recognize that the root of sin is idolatry. And then we have to do a second thing. I say in your outline. We have to specify the reality of sin. You know, we could just go through that first point and we can still hang out in the abstract. You know, yeah, all that stuff Pastor was saying today is all true. We're a bunch of idolaters. Our hearts are idol factories. I've got sinful desires that are capturing my heart and vying for my heart's affection all the time. Yep, that's all true in the abstract. But it has to move from beyond the abstract to, yes, idolatry is the root of sin to now specifying the reality. It's real in my life. And so we specify the reality of sin that is my idols. You know, and they're different, right? For you. They're different for me. And I've got to spend some time figuring out what those are. For me. You've got to do that for you. The Greek word that's translated most often sinful desires in our New Testament is really over-desires. 
To paraphrase John Calvin, as does author Tim Chester, and I have him footnoted in your in his book, You Can Change, on your outline. He cites Calvin saying, Our problem is not the natural desires God wrote into our character at creation, desires for love and for order and for pleasure that make us human. Our problem is desires which struggle against God's control. Human desires are evil and sinful not because we desire unnatural things, but because our desires, Calvin says, are inordinate. Here's what he's saying. You just want and I just want otherwise good things too much. That's what he means by inordinate. It's not necessarily that the things or the people you want are evil. It's that you want them too much because you have determined I have to have it or them in order for me to be joyful, in order for me to obey God. And thereby you've believed a lie about God, that He's not good, or that He's not good enough. And you see this. You see this in Scripture where, where people don't believe that God is this new affection that a desire for God, full-on desire for God, is enough. And so we believe God dispenses good stuff to us, and we want God for the good stuff He gives us, but God Himself is not enough. John chapter 6, you see this. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, and then on top of that, women and children. And the next day, people come back, and Jesus rebukes them. You all remember that? He says, you all have come back for the food that perishes. All you want are your stomachs filled, the stuff that I can give you. But the truth is, I am the bread of life. And if you take of the bread that I provide, and I am, then you will never hunger. If you drink of the water that I supply, you will never thirst, Jesus tells us. We look to God for our material and our emotional needs. But God always, always, always has a bigger agenda. And one of the ways that we deceive ourselves about our desires and how noble they are is by having them masquerade as needs. And so we don't say, hear this, we don't say, I lust to be loved. We say, I need to be loved. Ah, that sounds better. But the truth is, I can lust. I can so desire to be loved that that desire becomes idolatrous. We take a good desire to be loved, turn it into an idolatrous desire, but we call it a need. And God and His glory are then no longer at the center of the way I look at my situation. Instead, I'm at the center, demanding that people, demanding that people worship me. People come into churches ostensibly to worship and i'm telling you i've seen this numerous times over the years come to a worship service but the truth is they're standing back seeing who's going to worship me why because i want to see how friendly these people are how much how do these people really love me one way to find out is i'll just sort of sit in the corner and see who comes and talks ostensibly coming to worship all the while making yourself the center of what you've come for. 
And so I have to specify the reality of sin, identifying my idols. Now, how do I do this? How do I know? That something, some desire or desires has become idolatrous. Friends, identify what you spend inordinate amounts of time thinking about. Money. Things you spend time worrying about, fretting about. So that if only I had that thing fill in the blank, then I could move on. Then I could be joyful. Then I could serve God. So how do I identify my idols? Consider what you spend great amounts of time thinking about. Or consider the things that you notice. Because those are the things that are important to you. Could be any number of things. Physical beauty. You know, I notice, if, if, I notice physical beauty. As soon as I see someone, I comment on how they look. As I, as I think about myself, I'm, I'm thinking about how I look and how I would like to look different or look better. And I spend long periods of time thinking about how I can make that happen. And I never quite get to where I want, and so I'm never quite completely joyful. Why? Because my heart is captive to this idol of physical beauty. How do I know? Because I notice it all the time. Or consider what you talk about. So how important is sports to you? I mean, maybe the first thing you did today on Sunday, the Lord's Day, first thing you did, check the scores. You know, check out what happened in the Olympics, check out what happened with the Tigers, check out... You spend inordinate amounts of time and money chasing and talking about stuff because that's what you desire. And here's another way. Look at the fruit that's manifesting itself from your heart. I quoted Jesus, but right at the beginning of that quote, he says this, No good tree bears bad fruit nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man, evil things out of the evil stored in his heart, out of the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. But notice that heart in Jesus' illustration of a tree has roots that are either good or bad, and they are going to manifest fruit. So you're going to see fruit in your life, and that fruit is going to look like anger, bad fruit. And if you see bad fruit manifest in things like your anger, Jesus says attached to that is always a bad root. And that heart has been captured by something idolatrous. I want something that you're not providing. I want something that my circumstances are not giving me. And therefore, I manifest that idolatrous want, intense desire in my anger directed toward you or just directed at nobody in particular, at my circumstances. I'm seething all the time. 
specify the reality of sin, that is, your particular idols. Now we're going to go on to the third one and finish honest. But do you see how we could move from forgiveness to true reconciliation if we did this? How that instead of simply going to the offended and saying, will you forgive me, I did X. You also say, God is showing me some things about myself. God is showing me some things about my own heart, deep in my own heart. That not only showed up today when I did that to you, but showed up yesterday and show up in other ways. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to see what my heart has been captivated by. Now, one warning and then we'll go to the last point. And that is the Bible commends self-examination. I'm commending because the Bible commends self-examination. To examine our behavior and our thoughts and our words to see what is controlling, what has captivated our hearts. The Bible commends self-examination. But not continual introspection. You know, one guy called it navel-gazing. You're just always looking at yourself, trying to figure out what's going on with yourself. Well, here's the problem with that. Guess who's still at the center? Yourself. And so you should engage in this self-examination along the lines of what I've talked about. What occupies my mind, my thoughts, my, my words, my actions? What kind of bad fruit am I seeing? And you ought to examine what's at the root of that. But then depend on God's Spirit and His Word to expose to you your heart as you walk with Him without engaging in continual morbid introspection. And so we must recognize that the root of sin is idolatry. Specify the reality of sin in our own idols. And then thirdly, activate the remedy for sin, which is repentance. You all have heard the word repentance. Metanoia, Greek word, means Change of mind. Meta means change. Nous is a Greek word for mind. Change of mind. But a more full definition is it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. The remedy then is repentance. And the change of mind is a change in what I believe about God. Remember, behind every sin or negative emotion is a lie, not just any lie, but a lie about who? And if I'm going to repent, then I need to change what I believe about God. Because in all that junk, I'm believing something false about God. And that's why I say in your outline, I need to repent, I need to change what I think about God, such that... I renew my belief, my faith, same word in your New Testament, that God is bigger than my sinful desires. Whatever it is you're worrying about and fretting about, God's bigger than that thing. That's why God can say, don't worry, give no thought 
about the things that the pagans chase after. Why? Because you're my child and I'm your father and I can do it. Do you believe that? And repent of not believing that. Remind yourself regularly, God is bigger than this. God is bigger than my circumstance. Believe that He's bigger than your sinful desires to take control, to have this particular thing, and feel like you have to take matters into your own hands. And secondly, not only believe that God's bigger, but believe that God is better than your sinful desires. He's big enough. He's great enough. And He's also good enough to meet my heart's desire. That's why God asked through the prophet Isaiah, Why spend money on what's not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Dear friends, God is engaged in a change project in your life and in my life. But He doesn't want just transactional change, moment, one moment, and then sinning the same way the next because we're not getting to the root of the problem. He wants transformational change. And I say in your take-home truth, lasting change comes through radical transformation. Radical to the root. We're going to bow before God. And as we do, God begins this change project, and then He continues this change project. Every one of us is to be engaged in what one theologian called the race of repentance. Repenting of our failure to believe that God is big enough and God is better. Regularly doing that, all of us. But you start that race, and you start that race when you call on the name of the Lord. And the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come. And what God does at that moment is He places in you a heart with new desires. And He gives you a spirit, His Holy Spirit, such that you desire to be with His people and in His Word. And even though you're not where you need to be, and nor am I, God's Spirit causes us to desire to move ahead. And so for many of you this morning, what God is saying and the principles of His Word resonates with you because you have His Spirit and you want that. You desire that. But you started somewhere in calling on the name of the Lord and being changed from the inside out. The Bible calls that being born again. Given new life. And that can happen for you right now. If that has never happened in your life, it can and it should. And I urge you, for it to happen right now. Now how does that occur? Realize that you not only sin, you're a sinner. It's worse than you sin. <laughs> you're a sinner. You see, it's not just the stuff you do. The stuff you do is because of what you are. And what you are is the totality of what you are. And a leopard cannot change his spots, the Bible says. Only God can change the heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And give it, breathe life into it. So realize that about you. 
You cannot change yourself. Only God can change you because you are a sinner. And it is so deep and so deadly that Jesus had to die to pay the penalty for it. But Christ died for your sin. Repent of thinking about yourself in ways that say, I'm good enough. I'm a good guy or a good gal. I'm sure you are. Relative to me, relative to other people, but not to a holy God. Repent of thinking about yourself and about God in those ways. And say, God, I want to follow you with my life. And you receive the gift that Jesus Christ offers of eternal life. Based upon his death and absolutely righteous life. You say, that's a mouthful. I can do that when we bow and pray? Yep. Because there's no magic formula. No particular words. From your heart to God, you say, God, I recognize my own sin. I recognize I can't pay for my own sin. I believe Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. I ask you to forgive me and change me. I want to follow you with my life. For those of you that have done that, let's repent together. A failure to believe that God is bigger and better than our sinful desires. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the pain of internal conviction. We thank you for it because you cut us with the knife of your word, but as a loving father to heal us, to heal the wound, to make us better. So Lord, I thank you for confronting me, confronting us in the mirror of the word of God with what captures our thoughts and our words and our deeds, it is our idolatrous hearts. Oh, Holy Spirit, help each of us to identify the particular idols that have captured our hearts, different for all of us. Help us in, our, in the recesses of our own minds as we're driving in our cars this week, as we're, as we're thinking this afternoon about what we've looked at, and as we're interacting with one another. Lord, help us to see what it is that's capturing our hearts. We need your spirit to expose that for us. And when it affects our relationships, help us to, to say that to those who have been offended by the manifestations of that idolatry. Thus they'll see not only transactional forgiveness, but transformational change from the heart. Lord, I pray for anyone who came into this room who has not received Jesus Christ as Savior, bowed before Him as Lord. I pray that right now from their heart, they are doing that. Your Spirit is prompting them to see their need, acknowledge their need, and call upon the Lord, and they shall be rescued, delivered, saved. Oh, Lord, thank you for rescuing me at age 19. But thank you, Lord, that your rescue project did not end there. But you have continued through these many years since now to change me from the inside out, to convict me, to lead me to, my, to the need for repentance changing my mind about what I believe regarding your goodness and your greatness. Continue that change project today and this week and every day until we see you in glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.